Okay, we'll continue now with the examination of the Chula Vedala Sutta. And at this point we come to the section on the Anusayas, the under, what's called the underlying tendencies. And there are three defilements which are called anusaya or underlying tendencies. Actually there's altogether seven but sometimes it's simplified to three. Now the word anusaya itself it's, it comes from the root saya or sate or seti, the verb form seti which means to sleep or to be lying down or to sleep actually and anu means along with so the anusayas are certain defilements which are, we can say that they are always sleeping along with us except when they wake up and become active <laughs> then they become not anusias anymore, not dormant tendencies, but then they become active tendencies. And each anusia or underlying tendency has its own particular alarm clock that wakes it up. In our day-to-day -day life, if we have an alarm clock, then it will wake up anybody. If Mr. De Silva goes to sleep with the alarm clock on, when the alarm clock rings, then he'll wake up. If it's Mrs. Fernando, if she goes to sleep, when that alarm clock rings, she'll wake up. If it's venerable so-and-so, <laughs> when the alarm clock rings, he will wake up. But with the Anusias, it's not like that. But each Anusia has its own special alarm clock, which makes it active. And those alarm clocks are particular types of feeling. And for the Rag Anusia, that is the latent tendency to lust, desire, attachment. For this anusia, the special alarm clock is pleasant feeling. It's when we experience a pleasant feeling, generally when we experience pleasure, then we don't feel anger and hatred towards the pleasure, do we? And when we feel strong, intense pleasure, then we don't just become dull and indifferent to it, do we? Rather, when we experience pleasure, keen, intense pleasure, the inclination of the mind 
is to become attached to it, to grasp after it, and to desire more of it. Isn't that so? So what is happening now is that the raganusya, the latent tendency towards lust or desire, that has been awakened. One might be, say, walking down the street just in a very ordinary state of mind, thinking about this, thinking about that, then maybe if it's a man, if he sees a pretty woman walking on the other side of the street, then there comes a pleasant feeling from the sight, and then desire or interest, attachment arises. If one is just say, riding in the bus or a train and then somebody comes in with the radio and it's playing some pretty music, one hears it, there's pleasant feeling comes and then one becomes attached, one wants to listen, hear more, make it louder. If one is sitting down to lunch and the mind is troubled and worried, then somebody comes and brings a very delicious food and you eat it and taste then suddenly all the problems disappear from the mind only one problem to get more <laughs> and so this is how the latent tendency towards the desire or lust arises in response to pleasant feelings Then, the underlying tendency towards aversion that has its special alarm clock. That alarm clock is painful feeling. <clears throat> when you feel a painful feeling, then the mind reacts against that feeling or against the object that's causing the feeling. If there's a person who's always causing you trouble, who's always arguing with you and trying to create problems for you, and when you're walking down the street, you see that problem, you see that person, and when you see him, then a painful feeling arises in the mind. As soon as you see him, there come all the memories about the ways in which he's made trouble for you, and the painful feelings come up, and then you experience aversion, dislike. If somebody, if you're sitting on the bus and your mind is very calm and composed, then somebody comes in with the radio playing some loud, disturbing music, then painful feeling arises, and there comes anger and ill will towards that person. That's patika, aversion. 
when you sit down to your meal and the meal consists only of <laughs> rice and bitter gourd <laughs> then when you eat the bitter gourd there comes and if you're in a bad mood <laughs> then there comes unpleasant feeling and then aversion comes into the mind and then the latent tendency towards ignorance this is something which doesn't become so noticeable as lust or desire and aversion or hatred. The latent tendency towards ignorance, this is generally in the mind when it's not particularly stimulated by either a pleasant object or a painful object. When the mind is in that state of just dull indifference, say apathy, unconcern, experiencing this dull neutral feeling, then the mind remains in the state of dull unawareness and that is the underlying tendency of ignorance. Okay, so when the householder Upasaka, the Upasaka Visaka asks Dhammadina about the connection between the underlying tendencies and the feelings, then Dhammadina says that the underlying tendency towards lust underlies pleasant feeling. That is, it remains dormant in relation to pleasant feeling and it springs into activity when one experiences a pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion underlies painful feeling and it becomes active when one experiences a painful feeling. And the underlying tendency to ignorance underlies neutral feeling, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Okay, now Visaka asks quite a difficult and tricky question. He asks whether the underlying tendency towards lust underlies all pleasant feelings. Does the underlying tendency to aversion underlie all painful feeling? And does the underlying tendency to ignorance underlie all neutral, neither painful nor pleasant feeling? And Dhammadina says that this is not the case. The underlying tendency towards lust does not underlie all pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion does not underlie all painful feeling. The underlying tendency to ignorance does not underlie all neither painful nor pleasant feeling. <clears throat> the exact meaning of this, this will become clear as we go a little further down in the sutta. 
In fact, it seems to me a little bit almost as though somehow the sequence of the text in the process of oral transmission might have gotten a little mixed up here. Since it seems that this would have been the logical point to ask, how is it that the underlying tendency to lust does not underlie all pleasant feeling? And then Dhammadina could have given the answer right here. But in fact, the answer will become clear, but some other questions have been inserted in between. In fact, the next section, it's quite obvious. I won't take much time on it. I won't even state the question, just the answer. That the underlying tendency towards lust should be abandoned in regard to pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion should be abandoned in regard to painful feeling. The underlying tendency to ignorance should be abandoned in regard to neutral feeling. Okay, this is obvious since if one is going to overcome these three bonds or fetters of the underlying tendency, one has to abandon them in relation to the particular feeling which causes them to arise. And now Visaka asks the question which will really bring up the same, it seems to bring up the same point made in paragraph 26. He says, does the underlying tendency to lust have to be abandoned in regard to all pleasant feeling? Does the underlying tendency to aversion have to be abandoned in regard to all painful feeling? Does the underlying tendency to ignorance have to be abandoned in regard to all neutral feeling? It seems the point of this, of the questions, is is it the case that every type of pleasant feeling will cause the corresponding anusya to arise? Or are there certain types of pleasant feeling which do not necessarily or generally bring lust and attachment? Are there types of painful feeling which do not generally bring aversion? And so on. And Dhammadina replies that the underlying tendency towards lust does not have to be abandoned in regard to all pleasant feeling. The underlying tendency to aversion does not have to be abandoned in regard to all painful feeling. The underlying tendency to ignorance does not have to be abandoned in regard to all neutral feeling. And now she's going to explain what are the particular types of pleasant feeling, painful feeling, and neutral feeling that do not cause these anusias to arise and become attached to. And she gives the example first of someone who enters the first jhana, the first meditative absorption. 
And in that meditative absorption, there is pleasant feeling. That first jhana is accompanied by sukha vedana, pleasant feeling. And now she says, by means of that jhana, which is accompanied by pleasant feeling, he, that's the meditator, the bhikkhu, abandons lust, abandons desire. And the underlying tendency towards lust does not underlie that, does not arise in relation to that. Now this passage, maybe the meaning is a little trickier than (laughs) it appears at first sight. When you read it, you might just think that it means that when the meditator attains the first jhana, that there's no tendency at all for attachment to arise for the pleasure of the first jhana. But that is not the case, because the pleasure, the sukha, in the first jhana, in the second jhana, the third jhana, that pleasant feeling can also become an object of attachment and because of the attachment to that pleasure of the jhana one is building up through that attachment one is building up sankharas volitional formations constructive tendencies that will maintain the round of existence. If one becomes attached to that jhana and one just wants to experience more and more of that pleasure of the jhana, then one will go on cultivating the jhanic absorption and that will be, in a sense, that will be good. It's better than indulging in sense pleasures and worldly enjoyments and by engaging repeatedly in that attainment of jhana one will develop a very highly powerful and purified mind but that mind by itself will not lead to nibbana to liberation but the indulgence in the jhana, the attachment to the jhana, will become a projective power which at the time of death will bring the mind, consciousness, to rebirth in what we call the Brahma world, the realm of the celestial, high celestial beings. And then the mind can remain on that level for many aeons, countless, well, countable, but long, long periods of time. But after that, the existence will come to an end to be followed by rebirth someplace else. And so even in regard to the pleasant feeling of the jhana, there can be attachment, this We call this Rupa Raga, or a Rupa Raga, attachment to the fine material or subtle form realm. 
attachment to the immaterial experience, the formless realm. But it seems what Dhammadina is pointing to here is that by attaining the jhana and experiencing that bliss of the jhana, when one understands through insight that this jhanic state is impermanent, that it's suffering, dukkha, and that it's anatta, not self. When one has that understanding to begin with, and one attains the jhana, then on emerging from the jhana, one applies that understanding to the experience of the jhana. In that way, one develops insight, vipassana. And through that insight, one abandons the attachment to the experience of jhana. One cuts off that fetter of raga based on the jhana. And at that point, one could say that the underlying tendency towards lust does not underlie that jhana. Anyway, this is the way I would understand it. <laughs> but in the jhana, it's, or towards the jhana itself, we should understand there can be attachment. <clears throat> Okay, now we take the second case. This is the case where we're, discuss we're dealing with the relationship between the underlying tendency to aversion and painful feeling. And here Dhammadina gives the case of a monk who considers, apparently he's somebody who is not able to enter into the higher liberations of mind and so he's sort of thinking sadly and almost despondently when shall I enter and dwell in that base that is in that attainment that the noble ones now enter and abide in and so when he thinks like this sadly with longing and yearning then the mind is in a state of displeasure. There's painful feeling because he's somebody aspiring for the higher states of mind but not able to reach them as yet. And so he's generating this longing, yearning for the supreme liberations. And as a result of that longing, grief arises. This is dominasa, mental pain, sadness, sorrow. And Dhammadina then says, by means of that he abandons aversion 
and the underlying tendency to aversion does not underlie that. Again, this statement seems very compact in meaning. And I think if one just, if one just looks at it as it stands, it would be easy to misinterpret, thinking that when one is in a state of grief like that, that one doesn't have aversion or, or, or that one is able to abandon aversion just by going into a state of misery and despondency because one is not able to reach these higher attainments. In fact, according to the Abhidhamma method of explanation, whenever there is displeasure, dominasa, grief, at the same time there is aversion. The two always go together just like an object in the light and its shadow. If there's grief, then there is aversion. If there's aversion, then there is dominasa grief or dis mental displeasure. But rather the point of Dhammadina's statement, as I understand it, would be that <clears throat> but it's when one feels dissatisfaction and discontent because one is not yet able to reach those higher liberations of mind and one wants very strongly to reach them, then through that grief and yearning, then one makes the effort to practice the path that leads to those higher liberations. And so by making the effort, first one will achieve some state of samadhi, of concentration, then based on that concentration one will develop insight and by means of that insight one will cut off the various defilements including the defilement of aversion, the patika anusaya. And then when one cuts off the latent tendency, the underlying tendency to aversion, then looking back upon that whole experience reflectively, one can say that the motivation for abandoning aversion was that experience of yearning and grief because of not achieving those higher liberations. So through that yearning, one reaches the higher liberations, and by doing so, one abandons the underlying tendency to aversion. Okay, then the third case, this deals with the relationship between the underlying tendency of ignorance and neutral feeling. 
And here Dhammadina gives the case of a monk who enters and dwells in the fourth jhana, which is reached by overcoming pleasure and pain, joy and grief. And in the fourth jhana, there is neutral feeling, neither painful nor pleasant feeling. And then she says, by means of that, he abandons ignorance and the underlying tendency to ignorance does not underlie that. And now if you just read it and just take the words according to the surface meaning, it seems that the monk goes into the fourth jhana and just by achieving the fourth jhana he becomes an arhant, he gets rid of all ignorance. And so if you just interpret the sutta just according to what the words say, then one could argue and quote the passage and say, to achieve our hardship, you don't have to practice vipassana, you don't need wisdom or panya, you just practice and achieve the fourth jhana. By achieving the fourth jhana, you abandon ignorance. And then you can challenge people to <laughs> argue against you and if anybody tries you just quote the passage and then they're reduced to silence but if you do that then maybe you can chalk up many points as a debater but you don't understand the text and the person that you argue with that you argue with won't come to or that you explain the text to won't understand it either okay so here I think one has to <laughs> expand on the meaning and try to say but to investigate what is the underlying purport of the statement and so this is the way I would understand that she is explaining the case of one who develops the fourth jhana as a basis for developing wisdom and so here the meditator enters into the fourth jhana, becomes stabilized in that jhana, and then with that jhana as the basic samadhi, comes out and develops insight, viewing the jhana and its factors as impermanent, as unsatisfactory or suffering, as without a self anatta, egoless. And as that insight deepens, <coughs> then it eventually culminates in one stage of enlightenment after another, till at the fourth and highest stage one abandons ignorance. And at that point, one could say that the underlying tendency to ignorance no longer underlies this.
but somebody who just develops the fourth jhana and without having the wisdom of insight, without even having samaditi, right view, when he comes out of the fourth jhana, he might take that this jhana is the final goal, that's enlightenment, that's nirvana, that is the supreme bliss then can one say that <laughs> there's no more ignorance regarding the fourth jhana? Can one say that? In fact, when one makes this, when one has this misunderstandings about the fourth jhana, that itself is ignorance. Okay, so that is the section on the underlying tendencies. Okay, now, uh, is there any question on this pertaining directly to this? Wendy, can you expand a little bit about the Anusayas and where they are, like the Bhavanga? They kind of, Lady Sarah said, they lie surrounding the Bhavanga. Is there anything said in the commentary sort of thing? I think the commentaries bring up that question and they do so in a very cautious way since <laughs> no, it's proper for them to be cautious since one might get the idea that there's some kind of soul continuing in which the Anusias are always lying and then that would be almost a kind of eternalist view <laughs> But what is said in the commentary is that one should understand the term anusya as meaning that the tendency is there in the sense that it can arise if, it, if there is a stimulation for it. But one shouldn't understand the anusya to be stored up somewhere. It's just that as long as it is not yet cut off and annihilated, when there is contact with some pleasant object, the raganusia, the tendency towards lust, can arise. In other words, a state of mind, a cheetah accompanied by loba, by greed, will arise. As long as one has not yet cut off the latent tendency of aversion, if one makes contact with an unpleasant object, a painful object, then aversion might arise. So one should just understand that there are these potentialities in the mind. But one shouldn't say, where are the potentialities? <laughs> Maybe to give a coarse example, Okay, let us say the television set. Okay, there's a program being broadcast at 6 p.m., say, a time, okay. And we don't have the television set on. <laughs> and then we turn the television set on at 6 p.m. and the program comes. And so then 
somebody can raise the question, okay, before you turn the television set on, where was the program inside the television set? Is it in the tubes, in the screen, in the, what is it, the dial? Is it in the on and off switch? Where is the program? And you can't say that the program is any place, but it's being broadcast. And so if one turns the on, the switch on, then one will get the program. <coughs> any other question on this part? Okay, then we'll go into the next This is a somewhat interesting section. And this section is concerned with something called counterparts. And this, the commentary explains that this word counterpart has two senses, that there are two ways in which we could say that two things are the counterparts of each other. One is the sense of being opposites. So that if two things are different or opposite in nature, then they're counterparts, patibhaga. The other sense is if one thing represents, we could say, a further extension of the first thing. So we might represent this maybe in an illustration. <coughs> anyway, I'm not sure that that will work completely here. <laughs> okay, so Visaka asks now, lady, what is the counterpart of pleasant feeling? And Dhammadina says, friend Visaka, painful feeling is the counterpart of pleasant feeling. In this case, pleasure and pain are opposites. Then he asks, what is the counterpart of painful feeling? I think what one <laughs> One could also say quite legitimately that pleasant feeling is the counterpart of painful feeling. But she says, oh, she does say that. She says pleasant feeling is the counterpart of painful feeling. I'm sorry, I got a little <laughs> confused here. So pleasant feeling and painful feeling are opposites and in that sense they're counterparts. And now he asks, what is the counterpart of neither painful nor pleasant feeling? And here she says, ignorance is the counterpart of neither painful nor pleasant feeling. Here ignorance is not the opposite of this neutral feeling, but the two go together because 
the type of feeling which is the base or stimulus for ignorance, for unawareness, is this neutral, dull feeling. When one is not particularly excited by pleasure, not particularly oppressed by, by pain, when the mind is just in this indifferent state, then it, re it remains in the state of dull unawareness or ignorance. Okay, now he asks, what is the counterpart of ignorance? And she responds with the opposite of ignorance. True knowledge, vidya, vidya, is the counterpart of ignorance. Here, this is the opposite. When ignorance is present, there cannot be true knowledge. When true knowledge arises, then it drives away ignorance. So these are opposites. Then she asks, what is the counterpart of true knowledge? Now if she wanted to stay in the realm of opposites, then she could have said, ignorance is the opposite, or is the counterpart of true knowledge, and she would be correct. But now she's going to lead the teaching in a deeper direction. She says, the counterpart of true knowledge is deliverance. Vimuti, that is, because when true knowledge arises, then it drives away the defilements and ignorance, and then the mind is liberated from all of the <coughs> taints or tempers. And then he next he asks, what is the counterpart? of deliverance. If she were to give the opposite, she could have said bondage <laughs> is maybe that would be you say, the asafas are the opposite of ignorance, of deliverance. Or the yogas, the bonds are the opposite of deliverance. But she answers by showing the extension of deliverance, that to which deliverance points. And she says, Nibbana is the counterpart of deliverance. And now one might ask, raise the question here, what is the difference between deliverance and Nibbana? Here, I think one has to understand that deliverance refers to the actual experience of the mind's liberation from the defilements. When all the tankers, the asafas, all of the fetters are cut off, then the mind is liberated and one experiences that deliverance of mind, that liberation of mind. Nibbana here is the 
unconditioned element, the or the asankata dhatu, or the amata dhatu, the deathless element. And so it is through, you could say that it is through the realization of the unconditioned element that liberation takes place, that the mind is liberated from the taints. And so, with that idea in mind, Visak uh, Dhammadina replies, Nibbana is the counterpart of deliverance. Then Visaka asks, Lady, what is the counterpart of Nibbana? What is there <laughs> beyond Nibbana to which Nibbana can lead? And at this point, Dhammadina says, Friend Visaka, you have pushed this line of questioning too far. You are not able to grasp the limit to questioning. In other words, you're asking an illegitimate question, a question that cannot be properly answered. And then she gives a reason why. It is because the holy life, that is the Noble Eightfold Path, merges in Nibbana, culminates in Nibbana, ends in Nibbana. Nibbana, it's the final, you could say it's the omega point, the final terminating point of the entire spiritual life. And now Dhammadina, just to make a hundred percent sure that Visaka will be convinced by her answers, she says, if you want, maybe if you have any, I don't think he had any doubts about this since he was an Anagami, <laughs> but anyway she says, if you wish, friend Visaka, go to the Buddha and ask him about the meaning of this. And as the Blessed One explains it to you, so you should remember it. And so then the, the lay disciple, Visaka, delights and rejoices in Dhammadina's explanation. Then he gets up, pays homage to her, and then goes to the Blessed One. And then after paying homage to the Blessed One, he relates to him this entire discussion with the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina. <coughs> and then when the Buddha hears that explanation, he says, he puts the sort of, the Buddha's stamp of approval on the answer. He says, the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina is wise. She has great wisdom. Ask me about the meaning of this, I would have answered you in the very same way that the Bhikkhuni Dhammadina has answered, answered you. That is the meaning of it, and so you should bear it in mind, remember it.
and by putting that stamp of approval on the words for that reason I think when the first Buddhist council was held after the Buddha's Parinibbana the great elders who participated in the council would have heard of this discussion and they included it in the Majjhimanikaya. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.